Oh God, thank you that you want to bless us, that you want to give us a life that is better than the one we currently have. You've given us good principles and counsel to help us thrive in the midst of a broken and difficult world. So God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would be our teacher, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so that phrase abundant life comes from John chapter 10 and verse 10. Jesus says, The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Uh, Jesus wants us to have an experience, not just to have the joys of salvation, but to have an abundant life in the here and now. And that includes our physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health. He wants to bless us in every one of these areas. And I'm very, very thankful for that. So uh, we see in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, it says that Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Uh, Something that you may not know is that Jesus actually did more healing than teaching and preaching. Did you know that? Jesus spent more time healing people and meeting their needs than he did in just preaching and teaching. And so we've got this uh, little acronym that we use here that we think is very helpful that reflects those eight health principles. There's different acronyms. Some people do creation health. We've got one here called New Start. Uh, But the basic idea is those, those health principles found within Scripture that can lead to us having that abundant life even in the midst of a broken and fallen world. The first is nutrition, then exercise, then water, proper hydration, sunshine, temperance, air, rest, and trust in God. We'll touch every one of those at some point through the course of this evening's message. But these are the eight health principles that we find in Scripture that show us how to function at our best. Uh, We've been hearing about them during our health segments each night in our meetings together, but we'll kind of unpack each one We'll spend more time on a few of them uh, and spend less time on others, uh, but we also have resources we're happy to give you. We just need to kind of prioritize some for time's sake. So let's go to nutrition. This is a big one. This is found in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. This is how God created Adam and Eve and what he wanted for them. Now, when God created Adam and Eve, was that in the world where there was high cholesterol and high blood pressure and cancer and diabetes? Was this, was this an issue at this stage? No, this is the ideal scenario. There is no sin, there is no sickness, there is no disease, and this is what God wanted for people to function optimally. This is kind of their original uh, plan for their setup. So in Genesis 1:27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth. Every tree which yields fruit, or every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. So God, as our Creator, designed our bodies to work on certain types of fuel that would lead it to function at its peak performance. In the same way that putting diesel fuel in a gasoline engine would cause damage and malfunction, eating improper food leads to damage and malfunction in our bodies. By the way, I have a friend who did that. He had a Nissan Maxima that was a diesel, and he put gas in the engine. It didn't go well, okay? Diseases like hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and many other lifestyle-related illnesses can largely be reduced and in some cases even cured completely by practicing the principles that we're dealing with this evening and in each of our health segments each night. Diet has a large role to play in our overall health. 
plays such a such an important role. You've heard people say, you are what you eat, right? Many things that we wrestle with in our bodies are largely the result of what we put in our bodies. Then we get to Genesis chapter 3. So it was largely a fruit-based, seed-bearing diet, uh, anything that would bear seeds. But then we get to Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of mankind, and this is what we have in verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. What eventually gets added to man's diet after the fall is vegetables and roots and stems and other things that we wouldn't have normally eaten before. And it was largely a fruit-based diet. Now there's more things added, and all of which have medicinal properties that help address the issues that we face in a body that's deteriorating because of sin. It's very interesting that the things that God added to our diet have remedial properties that help us with the things that have happened to our bodies since the fall. So God makes provision for that. Uh, It's one of the reasons why vegetables can be so healthy and good for us now. So at this stage, man was eating fruits, vegetables, nuts, legumes, and seeds. Uh, This was the holistic diet they had after the fall uh, that still was for their best interest. I remember uh, someone was mentioning some time ago, I remember hearing in a presentation that every child instinctively knows that vegetables are a result of the curse. (laughs) Anyone want to vouch for that? There's certain things like Brussels sprouts. Ah, why did they eat that dang fruit? Actually, I like Brussels sprouts, but celery, no, not a fan of celery, sorry. Um, but then we get to Genesis chapter 9. This is the diet that was ideal, that was given to man even before the, flood, or before the fall. And then after the fall, we added some things. But it's still a plant-based diet. Okay, It's a plant-based diet. But then we get to Genesis chapter 9, and a cataclysmic flood, flood is about to take over the earth. Right, The entire world is going to be submerged in water. So if the entire world is covered in water, do you think you'll be able to get vegetables easily? What do you think? No. Okay, so here's where we are, Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have we heard that before? Yeah, that was Adam and Eve's call, but once the world has been wiped out, we're starting again. This is the same call, populate, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you should not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. We'll come back to this point in a moment, what it looks like in verse 3. But what precedes the flood was the pronouncement that men only did evil continually and that God had regretted making man. This is the narrative that came before the flood happened. That literally humanity was, was, was going towards destruction at a breakneck pace. It was really bad. And so when Noah and his family end up being the only people who respond to God's appeal to repent and get in the ark after the flood had ravaged the earth, there's not going to be enough vegetation to feed these people, these eight individuals. So God at this point, for the first time in human history, gave permission to eat animals. 
but with the first condition being that they did not eat the blood in the meat. It had to be drained of blood. Disease is carried through the bloodstream, so there were health reasons for this, but also because blood is represented as the life of an individual or as an organism. So the blood has to be removed. But when we go to Genesis chapter 7, as Adam is planning on, or not Adam, as Noah is being told what to do to prepare the ark, he's told an interesting set of numbers here. He says, you shall take with you seven of every clean animal, a male and his female, and two each of of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also, seven birds of the air, male and female, to keep all the species alive on the face of all the earth. So there's a distinction here. Certain things, there's only a small number of them. Two, maybe four max, if they're counting two pairs. And then when we get to the seven, there's maybe 14 animals of each of the clean, of male and female. There's not a lot of them. Now, we don't know how many animal types got in that ark. It was a big boat. Has anyone ever been to the ark encounter, by the way, in Kentucky? Uh, Someone has actually rebuilt, not rebuilt, but someone's actually built a model of what the ark was like. It's right near the Creation Museum. It was made by Ken Ham, who's a creationist. And uh, anyway, you can actually get a feel for what this looks like in real life, kind of the size of it. And it's big. And so they've got animals inside of here. But there was a distinction regarding their eating of animals. Now, at first glance in this previous verse, it makes it sound like if it moves, kill it and eat it in verse 3. It kind of looks like that initially, doesn't it? But it was preceded by comments in Genesis chapter 7 that give clarity. It says... uh, First of all, here in Genesis 7, we can see which animals they could choose from. There were clean animals and unclean, and there were only two of the unclean species, male and female. So if you eat one of them, the entire species is going to be wiped out. And the reason why God put two of that species is to prolong them so they can procreate and fill and multiply. So if you take out the unclean ones, because it doesn't matter which ones you eat, you will literally leave the entire animal kingdom extinct in that category. Does that make sense? Right? So the reason why there's more in one category than the other is because this one only has enough to procreate. This one has extras that you could eat. Does that make sense? There are more of the clean that you could eat. You shouldn't be eating the ones that are unclean because it'll wipe out the entire population. That's kind of the premise behind this. So that's not what's being referred to here. So there were seven pairs of each species that God deemed as being clean. This gave them extra animals to choose from that wouldn't lead to their extinction, but would also provide food until the vegetation could return and the species also was able to multiply. Now, when you look at the genealogies, though, from this point going forward, after man begins to eat animals, their length of life goes down significantly. If you've ever paid attention, people were living 500, 700 years. After the flood, people are living 100 and something years. It's nowhere near as long as what it used to be. And after man uh, begins to eat animals, their life, uh, length of life goes down significantly. Now, part of this is an act of mercy. Can you imagine living 900 years in this broken, diseased, and depraved world? That would be miserable. It would be horrible to live 900 years in this type of existence. And so part of that is just an act of mercy. So there's a correlation here between the shortening of man's lifespan and beginning to eat animals, right? If you just kind of follow the paper trail, people live less long uh, once they start ingesting animal products. And even today, studies show this, that people who eat a solely plant-based diet and no animal products live significantly longer than people who do eat animal products. That's just the science. It just works that way. That's the way that our lives uh, are built for that. I mean, you just look at the human intestine. It's super long. It's, I forget the length of it. It's like 15 to 30-something feet, I think. It's a, it's a significant length. 
That's a long time for meat to be resting inside of your body and deteriorating and, and rotting, right? That's why people who eat high amounts of meat have higher chances of getting colon cancer, right? There's correlation there. But a lion has a very short length of intestines because it eats meat. It was designed to eat meat. Anyway, the way that we're designed was not meant to be that, though there was an allowance for it. We weren't designed for that to function optimally. Cancer rates and other things go up because meat is just kind of brewing and rotting inside. Now, Leviticus 11 gives more information on this idea of the clean and unclean to help us identify what was what. So beginning of Leviticus 11, verse 1, it says this, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. So the land beasts, if it chews the cud and has a split hoof, you may eat it. That's the principles we're given here for Leviticus 11. So that's cows, oxen, deer, bison, goat, sheep, elk, etc., but those who don't have both categories, it's not like it's one or the other. If they have cloven hooves, but don't chew cud, that's good enough. It has to be both of them. And so the unclean animals would be things like pork, anything that's pork-related, ham, bacon, so forth, pork chops, whatever, rabbit, squirrel, bear, donkey, like these are all unclean land animals, okay? They're not to be ingested uh, according to Leviticus chapter 11. Then they give us some classifications when it comes to fish, things that are based in the waters. These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever, wa whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or the rivers, that you may eat. Now, the idea of the sea is that it's salt water, and then in the rivers, it's moving water. So you kind of have some examples here of what is ideal. Things that just you know, largely live in ponds or lakes aren't ideal because the water is just stagnant there, right? The moving of the water is more beneficial, uh, will lead to a cleaner meat to eat. So uh, they had a filtration system within themselves with the fins and the scales. So examples of that are salmon or tuna or trout or bass, bluegill, so forth. But the things that are unclean would be like catfish or shrimp or lobster, crab, clams, crawfish, crawdad, caviar, etc. Um, and largely freshwater fish, I think, is just the more ideal scenario. But these are the things that are listed as clean and unclean. In fact, some of those I may have quoted earlier may just be lake and... Um, I'd done some research earlier, but some of that you can't always tell. Freshwater is obviously an ideal scenario. But then we get to verse 13 through 19. It kind of alludes to birds, but it doesn't tell you what birds you can. It tells you what you can't. We've got principles based upon this. It says, These you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. These shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, the falcon after its kind, every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after its kind, the little owl, the fisher owl, the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the stork, heron after its kind, and the hoopoe and the bat. These are largely scavenger birds, right? They're going after dead bodies, things that have been left, and so forth. These are the types of birds you see on the side of the road eating the deer that someone hit two weeks ago, right? Now, I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't feel too good if I was eating that deer from two weeks ago. I certainly don't want to eat the thing that's eating that because now I'm getting that. You kind of understand the process there. So chicken, turkey, quail, pheasant, these are kind of like the pecking and foraging birds are the more the ones that we would allude to that would be clean. Now, the animals that are unclean are largely the bottom feeders or the garbage disposals that clean up and eat things that are rotting, dead, decaying, and just flat out gross, right? A lot of things that fall in that category are those types of animals. So God has many of these unclean animals that act as a filtration or cleaning system on the earth, which is a blessing. 
but you wouldn't drink the water that's in your water filter and the crud that it got out of your water line, right? That just would be gross. It wouldn't be healthy. You probably would feel terrible after the fact. It's no different here, right? It's the same type of idea. You don't want to eat your compost or the stuff in your garbage disposal. That's the type of idea that's alluded to here. The chances for disease transmission is very high and it's very bad for our health, which is why God gave the principle. He's not looking for reasons to make people miserable. He's looking for people to live healthy, abundant lives and things that are more prone to be infested with disease are not going to lead to an abundant life because they're filled with death, right? Just basic principles here. So here's the, God did this for our flourishing and for our good. That's the point, okay? And then in Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 17, we're given one more set of principles here. This shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings, that you shall eat neither fat nor blood. So of the clean animals, to not have fat or blood in them. One of the easiest ways to find out the best meat to eat would be to find out if it's kosher. The Jews have been doing this for thousands of years, and kosher meat would fall in that category that's easy to kind of figure out which one you would eat if you chose to eat it. Um, so that's the other principle we're given. And by the way, this principle continues even in Acts chapter 15. So in Acts chapter 15, imagine being the Apostle Paul. He's going, he's preaching his guts out, winning souls, and Gentiles are coming into the church. Amen? That's a blessing. That's a good news for, for most of us if we didn't have a Jewish heritage. It's a great blessing. But the problem is there are some people who are more Jewish-leaning in the Christian church now who are saying those people have to be circumcised to be saved, the males obviously. Now, that's a hard sell as an evangelist, right? For me to say, you know, at the end of these meetings, who wants to be baptized and who wants to accept Jesus? Amen. Great. Hey, fellows, we need to talk for 15 minutes after the meeting. That's a hard sell, right? This is a difficult thing. And Paul realized this and said, this is no longer required for salvation. It was a type. It was an illustration of an inward transaction, right? The circumcision of the heart. But some people weren't listening to that, so they had a council. The church leadership got together in Acts 15 and discussed, is circumcision mandatory for salvation or not? And the answer, all the men can say amen to this is no. Okay? That's not required for salvation. That's not the circumstance. But they also addressed any other perfer, you know, peripheral issues that needed to be taken care of. And then they wrote a letter to all the churches based upon what they had voted as a church. Through the Holy Spirit's prompting, that letter is here in Acts chapter 15, beginning of verse 23. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your soul, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was stoned in Acts chapter 14 and left for dead, but didn't die. Verse 27, We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. So we're sending additional witnesses with them. For it seemed good to who? The Holy Spirit. Okay, so that wasn't just a church decision. The Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols from blood right? Don't eat blood. From things strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well, farewell. If you keep reading, that letter gets to the people in Antioch, and it says when they read it, they rejoiced over the good news, especially the first part, right? 
Uh, at least the men did. So that's, that's how they close out that letter. So even in Acts chapter 15, after Jesus is resurrected and they've come to better understand what was a type of Christ that we leave aside and what stayed with the church from that point forward, they still were saying, don't eat blood. Okay, they were still making that statement in Acts chapter 15, which is a really, really important point. So if animal meat is going to be consumed, and we're going to use the Bible as our standard for how we do life, then they have to be clean animals, and they have to be kosher. Okay, uh, let me change something here real quick. There's a, her- a form of heresy in my notes that you don't see, but I'm changing that right now. Okay, I accidentally put unclean animals. That's not what it's saying. It's clean animals. And they have to be kosher. So we can't be eating fat or blood. This is still a practice of the New Testament church, even in Acts chapter 15. Now, while they did away with circumcision and many other Old Testament rites, they still counseled the new believers to stay away from blood. And it's because the health laws of the Bible weren't symbolic of Jesus, right? It's not like Jesus fulfilled that law by being a clean person So we don't have to worry about clean, unclean meat anymore. That's not what was being said here. They were not a type of Christ. They were just for the good and flourishing of man. So they continue. Does that make sense? That's the principle that's behind this here. And so it's to give us the abundant life that God always wanted. And he doesn't want people to be miserable. And it's easy to feel that way when you're accustomed to a Western diet, right? It feels like, oh man, you're taking like everything off my plate. But the very things that make meat desirable to eat, which are blood and fat, are spoken against here in Scripture. Okay? And there's actually a case study of what a plant-based diet can do for someone that's in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. So this is the very first chapter of the book of Daniel. And it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. We kind of alluded to this in our first night together, that Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians. They took a bunch of people captive. Daniel's one of those and his three friends. Okay? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, verse 2, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. That's in Babylon. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them. So at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. Now, among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Maybe you know their names as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's actually their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, So these are their Hebrew names. Verse 7, to them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. Well, there it is, sorry. Anyway, verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he should not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacy. So something about the king's food was unclean and would defile him. Nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, this is kind of a big deal, right? Like you and I may struggle when someone sets something in a plate when we eat at their house. We're like, oh man, I don't really eat that. Or it just makes you sick if you eat it. Maybe it's not for moral reasons. And you kind of feel bad about saying something. Well, imagine that you're in a foreign land and no one's going to know. If you have to abstain for moral reasons, no one's going to know. Who cares? You're in a foreign land, right? It's easy to think that when if I don't eat this, there is no option. It's not like Daniel can go to Walmart and buy something else later after work. Like, this is the only food they're giving him. 
And he says, I would rather go hungry and honor God than put that in my mouth. Can you imagine? This is going to cost him something. This isn't just like, ah, I don't really like that. I'll go get something later. There is no later. But he's standing firm on this. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And this is a really important lesson here. That when you choose to stand for God, God will bring you into favor with people when it's needed the most. Right? And that's what happens here. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who's appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who were your age? The assumption here is if you don't eat this, you're going to look worse than the other guys. That's what he's saying, right? This is his assumption. And then you would endanger my head before the king. But Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for how long? For 10 days, and let, us, let them give us what to eat. Vegetables, vegetables and what to drink. Water. water. Okay? Just give us water and vegetables for 10 days. And then let our appearance be examined before you. And the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. Compare us. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Give us a 10-day case study. Okay? Look at us, look at them, and then we'll figure out what to do. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, their features, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. They looked better and healthier and more vibrant than the other people. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine which they were to drink and gave them vegetables from that point forward. And as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So God seems to bless and favor them with stronger, more vibrant minds by standing for him and by eating a diet that's good for them. Okay? Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said, this is verse 18, that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. When he compared these guys and these guys, Daniel and his friends were ten times wiser, smarter, and healthier than their cohort. You see that? Everyone took knowledge of this, okay? And so if you want your health to be better and increase in wisdom in the things of this earth and the things of God, a plant-based diet is the best way to get there, okay? That's the best way to get there. The blood flow to the brain is better, the nutrients in your bloodstream is better, and you will thrive far more uh, than in another form of diet. Then we get to Genesis chapter 2. So that's nutrition. Now let's move on to exercise. We're not going to do it in order, the acronym, by the way, but the first two happen to be in order. Now, exercise. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, it says, uh, before any, verse 5 of Genesis 2, Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But in verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. So Adam's job was to be a gardener, right? An agrarian job and lifestyle. Then we get to Genesis 3, after the fall. Then he said to Adam, verse 17, Because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. You're going to have to work harder to get food out of the ground. 
both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, meaning until you die. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, into dust you shall return. Now, has anyone in this room done gardening before? Anyone here done gardening? Okay. Is it, is it easy work or hard work? It can be hard work, right? You've got to bend over. You've got to pull out the weeds. In fact, I just had to dig up two rose bushes that I accidentally killed last year. Sorry, ladies. I didn't mean to. I was spraying around them, but by spraying around them, I sprayed on them. And so I had like two thorny dead stick things that were just sitting in my front yard, mocking me, making me look like the worst gardener ever because I am. So I had to dig them up and get rid of the evidence, right? I had, and and I, got, I never got stuck. I dug him up, got him out of there, and I didn't have gloves and wasn't stuck by God's grace. But the point is, it's hard work, right? Digging in hard, you know, soil is not easy work. Now, which of these health principles do you think that you would benefit from while gardening of the things you see up here on the list? What do you think we'd benefit from? Exercise. Exercise, for sure. What else? Sunshine. Sunshine. Anything else? Air. Air. Yes, Absolutely. How about some other ones for extra bonus points? Oh, we got that one, uh-huh. Trust in God, right? You plant this thing and you're hoping the seed germinates and it goes. My, my, my family actually were some of the first people to settle in Southern Illinois and they were fruit growers. They were apple and peach growers and they had to trust that God would bring enough rain for the orchards to do well and to provide and God did bless them. How about anything else? How about temperance? Okay, how so? Okay, so temperance is basically abstaining from things that are harmful and using in moderation the things that are good. So that may not fully apply, but what else? You're going to sleep really good, right? Anyone ever had that? You worked really hard in the yard and you just cashed out that night? That's another good one. And there's one more. Nutrition, right? Because you're putting all this work in and you get to eat the fruit of your labors. And for a man, that's really important. Men are not the type that enjoy the process. We want the fruit, right? We want to see the labor of our efforts. It drives us crazy when we don't get to finish stuff. If you didn't know that, that's just how men are wired. We want, and so the fact that you can eat something that you worked for is a blessing. I stare at my lawn and I'm excited that I worked really hard to mow the thing with the push mower because it's more exercise. But that also means it looks nice, right? You feel good. You get to, to embrace that, okay? So when God created man, he gave him work to do that would lead to abundant health and bring rewards. I love that. This was the ideal environment for man to work, a place to develop strength, healthful surroundings, and he could eat of the fruit of his labor. In the developed world, though, this is less and less common for people, right? Many have sedentary jobs and sit for large portions of the day, and it's now being said that sitting is the new smoking. Did you know that? Right? Sitting and sedentary jobs are becoming just as harmful to us as if we were smoking. So, uh, anyway, multiple principles we tacked off on that one about gardening that God gave to man for his benefit, right? The exercise. Sweating, by the way, is also a great benefit because it removes toxins from your body, right? This is one of the reasons why you want to sweat. It's good for you to get that stuff out of your body. You don't want to shut down those things. All right, now in John chapter 4, verses 5 and 7, it's also good to take baths and showers, by the way, in correlation with that. Just so you know, uh, you want to wash off those toxins and make sure the people around you are not miserable. So uh, then we get to John chapter 4. Let's talk about water briefly. 
So Jesus is going on a long journey here, and it says he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's sons there, this is John chapter 4, verse 6 now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. Jesus knew when I'm tired, sit down and rest. Some of us need to learn that, right? Some of us workaholics. But it says it was about the sixth hour, and then a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So does Jesus value proper hydration? He realizes that I'm tired and I've worked hard. I need to get water in my body, right? Our bodies need that. And just because it's wet doesn't mean it's actually hydrating you. You know that, right? In fact, if it's colored, it probably isn't going to hydrate you, right? Or it's going to give you way too much sugar, which also isn't going to be helpful for your body. So, but proper water ingestion makes a big, big difference. And uh, if it's fizzy or dark colored, it's probably not going to help you reach that goal. So Jesus here understood that his body had needs and sitting down to rest from a long journey and getting water to refresh himself was part of that. He valued hydration. But Jesus, being who he is, uses a need of his own as an opportunity to meet the even greater need of someone else. And we'll close with that thought. I love what he does here. It's one of my favorite things to talk about, but I can't talk about it right now. We'll talk about it later. Then we get to the topic of rest. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 32. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and do what? How many people wish someone would tell them that at some point during the day? Like, wouldn't you love for your boss to say, hey, come aside and rest a while? Yes. Uh, yes, that we all, I, I wish nap time never went away. In fact, this is a whole other story. There's a book called Why We Sleep. This is an amazing book. I would strongly recommend it. This is not even written by a Christian. He's actually an atheistic scientist. But this guy is literally preaching biblical health principles in his book. It's a really, really good book. It's called Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. I would strongly recommend either reading it or listening to it on Audible. That's what I did because I cheat. I don't really read. I listen. But the information is still transferred. It's an amazing book. And he makes the point that we're biphasic beings and that we do far better if we nap in the afternoons, which is why Mediterranean cultures for many years live longer. But they don't do that anymore in some of those cultures, and now their lifespan has gone down. It's really interesting. So take naps because science. <laughs> Amen? Anyway, it's a really, really fascinating book, Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. He's not a member of my church. He's not even a Christian, uh, to the best of my understanding. But um, he's certainly an evolutionary scientist. But his, the information in that book is very, very in harmony, much of it, with what we've been talking about tonight. It's really, really interesting. Uh, Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. So... Jesus says, come aside and rest a while, for there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. We're not wired to run nonstop all the time. Can we say amen to that? You weren't made for that. It will kill you. It will put you into an early grave. God builds us with a need for rest, and you're not weak for resting. Jesus himself many times went apart by himself to recharge and commune with his Father, He was our example. There's another reason why God gave us the Sabbath, by the way. We need to slow down, right? We need to invest in our health and our flourishing and our mental health and our spiritual health. And the Sabbath is an opportunity to stop working, to recharge and prepare ourselves for the labors in the week ahead. Aren't you glad God gave us that gift? 
He was looking out for us. He wasn't saying, hey, you know, you're grounded for 24 hours and think about what you did all this week. Like, it's not the point of it. The point is to recharge, to rejuvenate, and to bless you, to speak life into you and to fill you with his presence and with his peace. Okay? Then the topic of temperance. This was actually alluded to this evening uh, in the health nugget. Uh, this is speaking of Aaron, Moses' brother, his sons, Nadab and Abihu. They had just started the priesthood. They had just got the tabernacle built. The services had just started. And it says this in verse 1 of, of Leviticus 10. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it. That's the little incense uh, they had. And they put incense in it, and they offered profane fire before the Lord. Not the good kind of fire, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Verse 8 of Leviticus 10. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. And it seems kind of strange, because the text doesn't say that they drank before they went in, but God is implying that they did. Do you see that? Initially, it seems kind of strange. Like, what's that got to do with what happened over here? Well, God is saying there's a reason why this happened, okay? He's alluding to Nadab and Abihu that they had consumed alcohol before they offered their sacrifices, and it hindered their judgment and led them to not do their services as God told them to, and it cost them their lives, okay? But he continues, in verse 10, well, in ver- the, the closing of verse 9 here, it says, It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. That you may, here's why he says not to drink. That you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. And that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord had spoken to them by the hand of Moses. So God says here that alcohol can keep us from being able to distinguish between holy and unholy, clean and unclean. Maybe some of us can testify to that, right? Then we get to Proverbs chapter 31. And some of you may be thinking, isn't that about like the virtuous wife and stuff? It is. And it was actually written for a man, uh, not for a woman. It was written for a man on what to look for in a woman. But there was other counsel this man was given in Proverbs 31, beginning in verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. And here's why lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. So here we're told that kings also shouldn't be drinking alcohol because it leads them to forget the law and pervert justice. Those sound like bad things, don't they? You can't distinguish between holy and unholy. You pervert justice and you forget the law. Now, I was studying with someone a few years ago, and they told me that these verses are only for priests and only for kings. That doesn't apply to me. And I really appreciated their answer. They made me a better Bible student. We love questions, by the way. I love questions. Because if I don't know, I'm going to become a better Bible student by wrestling with the text to find your answer. So questions are a good thing for me and for you. Well, first of all, in Exodus 19 and verse 6, this is part of my answer to my friend, God said the whole nation of Israel would be a kingdom of priests. That's Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6 that the entire nation of Israel would be a kingdom of priests. And Peter in 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and his own special people. And we as Protestants believe that we, we fully embrace the biblical teaching of the priesthood of all believers. So these verses do apply to us, first of all. And second of all, and here's the question I asked them, and they didn't like this question because they realized they were cornered. Is your body any different physiologically than a priest or a king? Yes or no? No. No. 
And if alcohol does that to them, will it do the same to you? Yes or no? Absolutely. So it will cause us to pervert justice, to forget the law, and to not be able to distinguish between holy and unholy. Now, as a Christian, do you think that would be the best thing to put in our bodies then? No. And this is not a statement of judgment. This is just a statement of logic. We're all on journeys, right? We're all working through things. Some of us have genetic dispositions. We have habitual dispositions. And God is wonderful and merciful and can get us through that if we find ourselves there today. This isn't a statement of judgment, but it is a statement of logic on how we should be doing life as Bible-believing Christians and a goal that we should have before us. Does that make sense? Okay, that's the point that we're making this evening. So we'll make sure that's clear. Then we get to Proverbs chapter 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions and who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine and those who go in search of mixed wine. So uh, in verse 32, it says, At the last, it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Okay, so it distorts our brains, right? It distorts our minds and the ways in which we function. So here's the point of temperance. Temperance is abstaining from things that are harmful and unhealthy and eating in moderation of things that are good for us. So temperance is not an issue just of getting rid of bad things, you know, like alcohol or tobacco or something like that, even though we should do that. But the other thing is it can be overeating in things that are good for us, right? Or overdoing things that are good for us. Um, I had a teacher in high school that if something was, you know, fat-free, they would eat nearly the entire box of uh, cookies or something, right? It's fat-free, so you can do more, right? We can be intemperate even, I don't know if fat-free cookies are good for you, so that may not be the best illustration, but the point is, um, and I'm not like militant and only eat cardboard, I eat sweet things sometimes too, but anyway, my point is, overdoing things that are good for us can also be an issue of temperance, Okay. So alcohol directly, in fact, it's a source of many problems in the world, and it directly impacts the functioning of the frontal lobe, as Lisa was telling us this evening. Uh, It inhibits the function. It actually kind of shuts down our frontal lobe, which the problem with that is our frontal lobe of our brain is the seat of our spirituality. It's where our moral decision-making happens, and it's what causes us to weigh out the long-term consequences of our decisions, which is why young people make stupid decisions. Right? Our frontal lobe isn't fully developed till we're 25. That's why we make those decisions and we don't understand, like, why did I do that when I was a kid? Well, you weren't able to weigh out the long-term consequences of this decision. Does that make sense? Right? And it's, it's like the worst time in life because our hormones are driving us, but our frontal lobe can't restrain us. And so it is a precarious time of life because it's, we're kind of imbalanced until we get to about the age of 25. So... Um, Coffee's another one. In fact, Matthew Walker talks about this in his book. Again, this man's not coming from a Christian worldview, but coffee actually decreases the blood flow to the brain by 40%. This is one of the reasons why you get massive headaches when you stop drinking coffee or or high caffeinated beverages because there's an increase in blood flow to the brain and it hurts, right? So it actually kind of limits our blood flow to the brain and our brains need blood. And it's also a diuretic. It dehydrates us, right? And hydration is super important, which can cause issues like kidney stones and so forth. By continually being dehydrated, uh, that can be one of those issues that causes that. We're not getting enough water to flush things through, and those calcifications build and grow. Tobacco also is a drug that causes lung cancer and many other health problems. 
Um, by the way, caffeine also causes issues with our sleep. And Matthew Walker makes this point in his book that even though you may technically fall asleep after ingesting caffeine, the half-life of caffeine is so long that your quality of sleep goes down. So you may be able to sleep, and even decaf, for instance, has caffeine in it. I didn't know that. I thought it was caffeine-free. It still has caffeine in it. So when you drink caffeinated beverages, especially from the middle of the day and later in the day, the half-life of caffeine is fairly significant. And so that's still in your body, so that even though you may technically sleep, your quality of sleep is less. It's less restful. It's less, less rejuvenative. Uh, and it doesn't help your body in the ways that you need it. So some people say, it doesn't bother me, I can sleep. Well, yeah, you may sleep, but you don't sleep well. Does that make sense? If you don't sleep well, that still comes after you later uh, in other deleterious ways. So uh, Matthew Walker talks about that in his book. Again, he's not even speaking on behalf of our church. Tobacco also is a drug that causes lung cancer and many other health problems. But again, temperance can be an issue of maybe just too much fat or too much sugar in our diets. And it could also apply to too much time in other areas of our lives that take away from things that are good for us, right? So if you spend, if you're staring at your phone all the time at the dinner table at the neglect of your, you know, your family, your children, and so forth, that's a problem. We can be intemperate in all areas of life, right? And it's good to make sure that we prioritize things that are the most important, God and family, healthful activities, and so forth. Then we have trust in God. In Psalm 56, verses 3 to 4, Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise His word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? These are some great promises to write down uh, when discouraged or anxious throughout the day. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then Psalm 63, verses 3 to 5. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name, and my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. So this is our privilege to trust in a God who is worthy of that trust, right? We've been learning all this time together about a God worth knowing. Uh, hopefully we see that through these things. So lastly, in this little health portion, then we'll close with, it, with a segment on mental health that I think is super important. But it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And God was very particular about what went in the temple, had the temple operated, and He's not doing it because He's a narcissist. He's doing this so that you can function optimally, right? Studies show clearly that people eat People who eat simply and exercise regularly and sleep properly live longer, healthier, happier lives than those who don't. That's just what science tells us. Okay, so this is one of the things that can be to our benefit and our flourishing if we embrace those things, right? What you do with this information is obviously your choice. We don't mandate. We don't send people home and spy through your trash cans and do all that stuff. That's none of my business, right? And I don't judge anyone who does or doesn't do as I do based upon my personal convictions. I got a better thing to do with my life than judge somebody else's lifestyle. But as someone who loves you, who appreciates you, who wants your best, this is why we present the information. Does that make sense? Okay, these are the principles of Scripture, and any questions you have, we're happy to take those. Uh, we all grow from questions. All right, now let's get into the last segment together. This is what it says in Psalm 147 and verse 3 about what God longs to do for our lives. It says that He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I love this. Anyone here ever had a broken heart before? 
Some of us may have a broken heart right now, and God is in the business of healing the brokenhearted and binding up their wounds. So Jesus didn't just deal with people's physical health. His calling was to heal the brokenhearted, and we see this in Isaiah 61. There was a, a, a circumstance in the book of Luke where Jesus was asked to get up and read from the scroll of Isaiah before the congregation in a synagogue, in a Jewish synagogue. And Jesus finds in the scroll where these words that we're about to read are written. And it's really interesting because after Jesus reads this, he says that these words are fulfilled in your hearing. He's basically saying that this prophecy of Isaiah is the very reason that I came. And I think this is so important to end with this because Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. This is what it says in verse 1, Psalm 61, Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He set me aside for this purpose to preach the good tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God. Many people are wrestling with, could God accept me? And what Jesus is doing is preaching the acceptance of God, the acceptable year of the Lord. I have come to show you that God is for you, not against you. That's why I came. Then it says to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. Three times he's addressing the issue of mourning the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting the Lord that he may be glorified. I love this because Jesus is stating here, this is what I came for, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to set at liberty those who are in bonds, to comfort those people who are mourning. Anyone else here thankful that that's why Jesus came to this earth? He didn't just come to teach stuff or to preach stuff, though those things were such a blessing to give us a clear picture of the Father's character. He came to ease and relieve our suffering. And He came to suffer to relieve our suffering. And we'll close with that in our last meeting together. But this is so important. Jesus is saying, this is what I'm about. This is what I came here for. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. And in the, in the synagogue, in the book of Luke, He tells people, this is fulfilled in your hearing. This is why I'm here. And anybody who is a Bible-believing Christian, this is why you're here. This is your calling in life. If you wonder, what has God made me for? It's this. Our job is to relieve suffering, to heal the brokenhearted, to comfort those who mourn. Amen? Amen. That's our calling as Christians. Okay? So Jesus is able to heal and set us free. He cares deeply about the emotional trauma and pain that we've gone through. Whether it be depression, anxiety, loneliness, abandonment, betrayal, abuse, Jesus can set us free. And again, we'll address that in detail later. Now I want to close with two stories and then we'll be done for the night. Okay? The first is the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and then the man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. Here's the story of John 4. It says in John chapter 4 and verse 4 that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Now, does any first century Jew need to go through Samaria? No, Samaritans are hated by Jews. They hate them with all their guts because they're not fully Gentiles. They're partially related to the Jews, but they're living this life that isn't in harmony with Judaism. They hate their guts. But the Bible says that Jesus needs to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. 
Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, this is 12 p.m. their time. Now, if it's in the Middle East and it's noon, is it hot or cold outside? What do you think? It is blazing hot outside, and no one in their right mind is going to be at that well at that time of day. And that's the point. Because a woman of Samaria came to draw water. People don't come to draw water then. Why is she showing up then? Because she doesn't want people to be around. Are you with me? This woman's water pot is her means of escape from the problems and the trials of her life. She's going where people aren't to get away from her problems. Maybe you've been there, right? Looking to escape the problems of life. But Jesus says, and that's why Jesus is there, and that's why he needs to go through Samaria. He knows that there's someone who's wounded there who's seeking to numb their pain through means that aren't going to work. And maybe some of us have been guilty of numbing our pain through means that don't work, right? Alcohol or relationships or social media or binging on movies or comfort food. Sorry for stepping on everyone's toes in the rooms at this point, whatever it may be for you, right? Those things we run to are drugs or other things to comfort ourselves and to just numb the pain. That's why Jesus needed to go through Samaria to offer this woman a true solution to her pain. Amen. I am so thankful that Jesus needs to go through Samaria. And so he tells the woman, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. But then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Right? Because a man wouldn't be caught, you know, with a woman in public like that, let alone the fact a Jew-Gentile issue. So he's tearing down gender walls. He's tearing down racial walls. He's tearing down religious walls. Jesus is just crushing all kinds of barriers right now. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew who was talking to you, you would realize that he has something to offer you that's better than this water that you're coming here for. And he says that in verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Maybe you can testify to this, that those things that we run to to numb our pain, right? Drugs and alcohol and relationships and pornography and comfort food and whatever thing else we may run to, you know, binging on media or whatever, it doesn't fill us, does it? It just leads us to thirst again. And that's the point he's making to her. This can't do it for you. I have something vastly better to offer you than what you're coming here for, but will you take it? That's the question. But whoever takes of this water that I give will never thirst. So in verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water that I may not come here to draw. She's not getting it. But Jesus doesn't tell her, grab a pitcher, grab a glass, open the fridge. What does he say? Go call your husband. Shots fired, right? If you know this story, he says, go call your husband. Uh, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. Oh, snap. (laughs) And so Jesus, he says, in that you spoke truly. Jesus knows this woman's story. And he knows that there are vacancies. Because first of all, in their culture, a woman couldn't get a divorce. So when a woman is divorced this many times, that means she's been rejected this many times. And now this guy won't even commit to her. He won't even marry her. And he says, I know, I know your story, and yet he's not judging her. He's not rejecting her. He's not pushing her away. And 
This is what's going to lead to her breakthrough, her accepting the healing and identity that only Jesus can give because none of those men could give it, right, from place to place to place. And this, Jesus gets through to this woman. It changes her life, and it brings healing to her. And the text literally says that the woman left her water pot with Jesus. Amen? Some of us have water pots we need to leave with Jesus this evening. There's things we're running to that aren't doing it. And he's saying, what I have to offer you is vastly better than what you're running to. Will you take it? Will you leave your water pot with me and be free? And she goes into the city and she says, come see a man who told me all of the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Jesus tells her plainly, I am the Messiah. He tells her more plainly than he does the nation of Israel because she's ready and she's seeking. Jesus needed to go through Samaria because he knew that there was someone there who's hurting, who's running to things that can't satisfy, and that she could reach a city if she would only know that her identity is only found in him. She did find it, and she wins a city for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Jesus cares about our mental health struggles. He cares about our addictions, and this is so, so important for us to see that. And again, my encouragement to you this evening is to leave your water pots with Jesus. One more story, and we're done. This is the man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. Now, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And in these, they lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. I've got some questions about this. We'll get into that in a moment. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity for how long? 38 years. That's a long time. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he asked him a seemingly obvious question, do you want to be made well? I want to address some of the backstory for this. Now, I think I, I, I take issue. It was a tradition in their day that when the water stirred, people believed it was an angel that did it. The reason why I challenge this is for a few reasons, but the first is this. It's teaching survival of the fittest, because if this guy's been an invalid for 38 years, and he's the most helpless case at that place, and he's not been healed, what's basically being communicated is God only heals the fit, not the weak. Now, does that sound like Jesus to you? No. No, right? Survival of the fittest is a chief foundational teaching of naturalism, of atheism, right? And this is not something I think that God would sign off of. And it's not something he could honor. It doesn't favor, uh, he does not favor the fit at the expense of the weak. We don't believe that to be in harmony with the character of God or with the life of Jesus. And as we're about to see in a moment, Jesus came here, I think, to dispel this very idea. He goes looking for the most helpless case, and he heals the guy to make it clear that God is willing to stoop to the lowest of humanity. No matter what you've done, what hole you've dug for yourself, how hopeless your circumstances seem, I'm willing to heal you. Amen? He's more than willing to heal and can heal. And as we're about to find out later in Jesus' conversation, this man is in this condition because of a lifestyle of sin. So his his paralysis is literally tied to decisions that he has made. It's self-inflicted. And yet Jesus is still going to come and do a work for this guy that is absolutely amazing. Now, we don't know how often this phenomenon took place. Let's just say it happened 10 times a year for illustration's sake. You better believe the first time it happened when he was laid there, he's flopping like a fish and doing whatever he can to get in that water, 
but someone else gets in before him. And how do you think he's feeling at that stage? Devastated, right? Awful. Well, imagine three years have gone by and he's missed 30 opportunities. When that water is stirred the next time, I mean, yeah, he's trying to get in that water, but not as hard as the first time. Are you following? Now imagine 38 years later. At this stage, his heart rate doesn't even increase. And he doesn't even shift his body weight because what's the point? I did this to myself. I deserve this. All the chaos in my life is my fault. No one cares about me. This is me. I get what I deserve. Why hope anymore? And that's why Jesus shows up when he does. Again, he shows up when all hope is lost for this guy. And he asks him this seemingly obvious question. Do you want to be made well? Now, if you've been paralyzed for 38 years, what would your answer be? Uh, yeah, what do you think? But that's not the answer the guy gives. He says, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool and the water stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. No one cares about me, Jesus. The problem is that's not the question I asked you. I didn't ask you, why aren't you well? Why can't you be made well? I asked you, do you want to be made well? And there's a self-sabotaging answer that comes out of this man's mouth. Do you see that? He's been living in negativity. I deserve it. I'm not good enough. No one cares about me. This is all I deserve in life is, is misery. Rejection, abandonment, and loneliness. That's all I deserve. And so this is what I love about this. Do you want things to change? Are you willing to exchange identity? That's what Jesus is asking. To no longer have an identity that's based upon what's been done to you or what you've done to yourself, but will you receive an identity that's based upon what I have done for you? Do you see that? This is precious and this is so important for us. Is your identity tied more to what has been done to you or what you've done to yourself than to what Jesus has done for you? Because that can be your act of saying, no, I don't want to be made well. When Jesus wants to heal you. Do you see that? We could be shutting off our pathway to healing because of our self-hatred and our woundedness. So he's got a decision to make. Will he believe what Jesus says in spite of what he sees and feels? Or will he remain in this discouraged state and lose his one chance of healing? Thankfully, he takes Jesus at his word and he's healed completely, not just in the physical sense, but emotionally and spiritually as well. Amen? Says, rise, Jesus tells him to rise, take up your mat and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It's the Sabbath. You can't carry your bed. And he said, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Now these guys have been walking by him for 38 years, ignoring him. And the guy is healed, and there's no celebration. Praise God that someone healed you. Who healed you? There is no interest in this man. And maybe some of us have felt that way. We have felt wounded and paralyzed and broken near religious people who left us for dead. That can happen, unfortunately. That was this man's story. No one cares about me, not even religious people. And if they don't care about me, I guess God doesn't care about me because I did sin and injure myself in this way. So who cares for me at all? But Jesus tells him to pick up his mat why? It's to remind him of where he came from. What Jesus is telling this guy when he tells him to pick up his mat, to rise, take up his mat, and walk, is to not forget where you came from. This mat was a reminder of 38 years of rejection, abandonment, loneliness, and so forth. And what Jesus is telling him is, don't forget what I've done for you. 
Don't forget. And it's interesting because th this is a reminder of your new identity in Christ and the religious leaders attack his identity in Christ. You're carrying a mat. Stop carrying a bed. Are you seeing the connection here? They're, they're, they're accusing him for holding the very thing that reminds him of what Jesus has done for him. And it says later in the text, they want to kill Jesus over this because he did it on the Sabbath. And that's another irony, because what does the Sabbath do? It communicates your value. It communicates your identity, and it reminds you where you came from, right? That Jesus is my creator, Jesus is my redeemer, and Jesus has promised to transform me by his grace. There's a lot of irony in this narrative here. But the Sabbath is the perfect day for this to happen, as it's a memorial of God's goodness to us. So Jesus, after this, goes and finds the guy when religious people discourage him. And he tells him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And he's not shaming the guy. He's letting him know, don't go back to that. Don't forget where you came from. Walk in the healing and freedom that I've given you. Amen? Amen. I love this. Jesus goes looking for him to ensure that he's encouraged and he's sealed uh, in a happy and, and holy and healthy experience. So this is my appeal to you tonight. And this is my closing question. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Do you want things to change emotionally, physically, spiritually, etc.? Jesus is offering us a whole other pathway to life, just like he did this man in John chapter 5. And just because you've been dealt bad cards in life from your family history of health or abuse or mental health, or we're currently reaping the consequences of a lifestyle that's not been in our favor, it doesn't have to stay that way. Amen? Amen? It doesn't have to stay that way, guys. Things can change. It doesn't have to stay that way. Jesus can step into this area of our lives and set us free and ease our burdens. And the question is, will you let him do that for you today and take him at his word and follow his counsel? Do you want things to change? That's the question. So our appeal tonight, now you can just fill these out actually for tonight. We'll do it this way. Number one is this. I see the importance of health and that the Bible has so much to say about it. If you've seen that, check the first box. Number two, I want to live my life in harmony with the health principles that are laid out in Scripture. You can check that box if that's you. Number three, I want more information, right? This may be new for a lot of you, and that's totally fine. And you're just thinking, hey, like, what on earth? Like, everything I thought I knew, maybe I don't know. What do I do with this? If you want more information, check the third box. Okay, someone will follow up with you. If you want printed materials, you want Bible studies, let us know. Number three, I want more information on how to improve my health. And, um, and then number four, if I'd like to give my life to Jesus. If you haven't done that yet, you can check that box. Then number five, if you have questions or prayer requests, you can fill those out. But has this been clear this evening, yes or no? Yeah? yeah? Jesus truly does want you to be made well, but do you want that? Are you willing to go there? And I don't say this in a shaming sense, but for some of us, we feel like we deserve the cards that we've been dealt in life, and it's hard to muster the guts to take that first step. I've been there. It's hard to take that first step. What do we do? But do you want things to change? Do you truly believe that God wants to give you an abundant life? Not just where you survive. He wants to give you the best life and an abundant life. Does that mean you'll be free from disease and hardship in this world? I wish I could say yes. No, even vegans get sick. Life happens to all of us because we, have a live, we live in a world of sin. But the point is our quality of life can be better. Are you with me? 
our quality of life can be better and God can provide for us. So let's pray. God, thank you for loving us, for blessing us. I know we went a little longer this evening, but I hope and pray that this topic of mental health and the root origins, many times while we have these unhealthy habits is because we're hurting, we're broken, we're seeking to numb pain through comfort food and, and unhealthy habits and lifestyle or, or doing nothing healthy because we don't care about us. We think we don't deserve any better. God, I pray that you would speak into that space tonight and that you would bless us that you would heal us, and that you would awaken in our hearts a desire to be made well. This is our plea tonight, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org